Welcome back to the Egyptian History Podcast, episode 45, The Book of Two Ways, in which the funerary beliefs of the Middle Kingdom gain new form and expression, and complex mythologies are revealed which tell exciting stories of the gods' mighty realms. This episode is brought to you by Andrew from Durham. Thanks for your support, Andrew, and to everyone following this podcast. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the show. The year is currently 1867 BCE, the 13th year in the reign of Kakaure Sinusirit III, the fifth ruler of Dynasty 12. Times are good in Egypt, and many communities up and down the Nile Valley are prosperous, benefiting from a good climate and skillful governance. But let's rewind the clock a little bit, back to the reign of Unas in the late 5th dynasty, somewhere around 2300 BCE. Unas, sometimes called the cannibal, is remembered for one great contribution to history, his decision to inscribe on the inner walls of his pyramid a set of religious texts known today as the pyramid texts. This body of religious literature remained an exclusively royal prerogative for nearly two centuries, as the 6th dynasty came and stamped the last great splendour of the Old Kingdom on the narrative of history. Since then, approximately 500 years have passed, and the priests of Egypt have been busy. As the generations passed, they have been continuing the tradition of these religious texts, preserving them and copying them as necessary. But something important has also happened, which may be one of the most important developments in Egyptian religious history. As the royal authority weakened during the first intermediate period, and regional nobles began to consider their own needs before those of the king, they began to apply the same autonomous initiative to their own funerary needs. That is to say, they began to circumvent what had previously been exclusively royal, and co-opt the pyramid texts for their own use. Sometime around the end of the 6th dynasty, a few wealthy and powerful individuals began to bury themselves in coffins on which were inscribed fragments of spells and hymns similar to those used in the pyramid texts. These texts were painted on the insides of their coffins, where their soul could easily read them once they awoke in the afterlife. The exterior of the coffins were decorated with eyes for the dead to see, doorways for the soul to leave, and tables of offerings to feed and nourish the Ba in their next life. These decorative elements began to slowly become more and more widespread. A nobleman here, a nobleman there, and after a while, it was becoming increasingly common among the wealthy and powerful. This really began to take shape in the 11th dynasty. By the time Amenemhat I took power, it was widespread among the wealthy, and no one could stop it. The result was the Middle Kingdom phenomenon of the Coffin Texts, a corpus of spells, hymns, instructions, maps, commands, and guides, which could help the soul, or bar, of a wealthy individual make their way into the kingdom of Osiris. There were two ways to enter the underworld, 
two routes by which a soul might access this kingdom. One went by land, and led directly to a union with the great god Osiris himself. Another went by river, and ultimately brought the soul to unite with Atum Re, the cosmic creator. This seems like a win-win situation for the dead, doesn't it? Well, not so fast. As an Egyptian's Ba or soul entered the underworld, and took one of these two routes, he or she would rarely travel alone. Along the way, each individual encountered gods, both benevolent and aggressive, and they would either be helped or hindered by those they met. Spells painted on their coffins helped them to beat back violent gods, and enlist the aid of the kinder ones. But the journey one took, by river or by land, required different spells and different guides. But a coffin has limited space. You can't put all the religious texts into it. After all, the corpus known as the coffin texts now includes no fewer than 1,200 distinct texts. And a coffin really only has five or six sides to decorate. This is where personal choice and tradition suddenly rears its head in the Egyptian religious narrative. As individuals began to choose particular spells to put on the limited space of their individual coffins, with only a few sides to use, they had to be particular about their route. And thus, the old royal prerogative on funerary tradition was irrevocably broken, and the 12th dynasty becomes a period in which the wealthy and powerful begin to share in the eternal rewards, rewards that were once exclusive to the king and his family. For decades, this process was misleadingly titled the democratization of the afterlife. It sounds pleasant enough, evoking notions of liberty and personal choice that are so often evoked in Western democratic societies. But the name is inaccurate, for some very specific but very important reasons. Democratization and democracy are words that originate in Greek, specifically the word demos, or people of a city. Around the year 500 BCE, Athenians began to refer to a concept called demokratia, which translates literally to the rule or power to the people. But what does demokratia mean? Well, it has nothing to do with religion, and everything to do with political authority. Who calls the shots? Who makes the decisions? In demokratia, it is the voting public. In ancient Egypt, and the social world of the 12th dynasty, the public had very little political power, and in terms of influence in religious matters, only a very small group of individuals had any real influence. So although wealthy people were now decorating their coffins with religious texts, they had almost zero authority over the composition of those texts, and almost no input into the ideas which lay behind them. They could choose which ones they wanted to take, but they couldn't really affect the composition. These prerogatives still resided in the hands of the king, and his priests. And while rulers like Senusaret III might not have cared what a nobleman put in their coffin, they still held supreme authority in all matters relating to gods and the cosmic realm. So, democracy? Mm, no, not really. Not at all, in fact. The term has fallen out of favour among Egyptologists today, 
but you will still encounter it in many general histories, and works written or published before the mid to late 1990s. So if you come across it, just remember, democratization of the afterlife is out of date. That isn't to say it has no value as a concept, just that it's not as correct as we need it to be. Perhaps a more appropriate term would be the unveiling of the afterlife. From a world seen only by a few, to a world in which anyone, who had the wealth to afford a coffin and the proper spells, might access after their death. Imagine the afterlife as a giant windowless building, with many closed doors. You know there are riches and immortality inside, but you're not allowed in. Then, one day, a door opens. Then another. Then another. Until about 50% of them are standing open, and anyone who can afford the door charge might pop their head in and see what's inside. That's more like what was happening in the 12th dynasty. The afterlife wasn't becoming democratized, just more populated. Remarkably, the afterlife was now more clearly defined in geographical terms as well. In fact, several coffins of this period, all of them buried within a single cemetery, are actually decorated with maps showing the routes one took into the afterlife. The best example of this is the coffin of a man named Gua, now housed in the British Museum. Gua was the chief physician for a regional governor, and he lived in Middle Egypt at the town of Kumunu, also known as Hermopolis, and today called Deir el Bersha. Kumunu was governed by the Kheri Tep Aya Jehuti Hotep. Jehuti Hotep, which means Thoth is satisfied, was buried in a lavish tomb to the west of Kumunu. And in front of his tomb, a shaft was dug that contained Gua's coffin and funerary equipment. And what beautiful equipment this was, including an ivory headrest, models of servants providing food for Gua, and a chest of canopic jars, one of the earliest ever discovered. Canopic jars were four distinct containers designed to hold specific organs from the deceased individual, the lungs, stomach, liver, and intestines. But the most significant feature of Gua's burial equipment was his coffin, which bore several spells and hymns, and the map of the underworld I mentioned earlier. On one side, a long, sinuous river is drawn in blue. On the other side, there is a line of black and grey, representing the road on the river's bank. The road branches occasionally, with detours and dead ends, which simulate the dangers of traversing this particular route. A soul losing its way was at risk of becoming forever lost, or being destroyed by monsters which lurked out of sight. These two routes each led to the same ultimate destination, the horizon in which Ray dwelled, and the eternal kingdom of Osiris. To refresh your memory, Osiris once ruled upon the earth in a prehistoric time of plenty and peace. The treachery of his brother, Seth, saw him murdered and flung into the Nile. It was only when Isis, the sister and wife of Osiris, found his body that he was resurrected through her magic, and the first act of mummification. 
She placed his body upon the island of Chemis, mummified it, and then used her magic to become pregnant with Horus, the king of Egypt. Now, mummified and enthroned, Osiris stood tall as one of Egypt's mightiest gods. His cult centre at Abydos has been a focal point of royal building activity all through the 12th dynasty, and his stature in the afterlife is linked with the eternal rule of the creator, Atum Re. For the aristocracy, access to the realm of Osiris is a new and much celebrated concept. When I say new, I do mean it's been around for a couple of hundred years, but it's really reaching its climax at this point in our narrative. To enrich their experience and polish up their credentials, many coffin texts referenced the great myths of Osiris and invoked his majesty as the eternal lord of the west. This is particularly strong in spell number 313, which is presented as a speech made to Osiris on behalf of the creator, Atum Re. Atum Re commands the wise god of learning and scribes, Thoth, or Jehuti, to visit Osiris upon his throne. Quote, O Thoth, says Atum, travel upon the island of fire on our behalf. See Osiris for us, for you will find him in Heracleopolis. I have implanted fear of him amongst the world. I have created awe of him. Grant him his crown anew on my behalf, for you, Thoth, are the one who protects Osiris. Thoth visits Osiris and says, Behold, I have come, and I have brought to you ma'at and joy. I have brought to you authority and vindication. You are triumphant over your foes, and I will give you a lifetime like that of Ray. I will open up for you the ways of the netherworld, and I will give you your crown anew in Abydos, and also the crown of Ray, which is in Nekin. I have placed your foes in bonds, Osiris. I have come that I may do again what is good for you. I will raise up Ma'at for you. I have filled the island of fire with love for you, as Ray commanded to be done. End quote. It's been a while since we saw Thoth, and what better way to meet him again than as the representative, protector, and warrior of Osiris? It's a role you may not realize Thoth had. For almost every general history, encyclopedia, and website I have ever read described Thoth pretty generically as a scribe, an accountant, and a wise man. But Thoth could kick ass when he wanted to, and it was part of his duties to ensure that the kingdom of Osiris was kept free of intruders, and that the traditional enemies of Egypt, who came from south, west, north and east, were slain. At least, this is how Egyptians viewed his role in the 12th dynasty, when they were taking great care to punish their foes and banish wrongdoers from the sacred space of Egypt itself. This is a theme we will see in episode 46, Crushing Our Enemies. Suffice to say, in the late 12th dynasty, many Egyptians living in provincial communities in the north and south were making special effort to ritualistically destroy their foes using statues and curses, and sometimes executions. Anyway, back to spell 313. Thoth's address to Osiris on behalf of Ray is pretty straightforward. 
It asserts that the cosmic order is in proper balance, for the eternal king is honoured, and his enemies are banished or repelled. Osiris has been venerated, and his kingship has been renewed, at the behest of Re. This is an interesting concept, because when you imagine an eternal king, you might consider it the equivalent of a monarch whose powers last for life. When that monarch is immortal, why do they need a new coronation? or renewal of authority. Well, although the rule of gods and kings was eternal, it still needed to be renewed. This was done at the consent of Re, and through the proper fulfilment of Ma'at on earth. As long as the living king fulfilled his duties, and the common folk served him properly, Ma'at could be endlessly renewed year by year. It was the same with the gods. Osiris's rule needed to be periodically affirmed by Ray, And in this particular scenario, it was the responsibility of Thoth. But what about the deceased noblemen, on whose coffins these spells were inscribed? Could they access this renewal? And access this divine power? Surprisingly, the answer is now, yes. Twelfth Dynasty Coffin texts are remarkable for the introduction of concepts of transformation and a soul changing its form in the afterlife. Spells of transformation are one of the more noteworthy collections among the coffin texts. Their writings are concerned with how an individual's soul might transcend this earthly realm and attain a new form in the afterlife. Essentially, the bar of an individual might through the proper learning and recitation of spells, become like the god himself. Now, how this worked in principle isn't quite clear. Did the soul replace the god? Mm, Probably not. Did it take on the god's characteristics and powers? Maybe. Or did the soul become a new representative, a being intimately connected with it, but not quite the same? This one is more likely. If that sounds confusing, it's because even Egyptologists are still struggling to untangle exactly what the Egyptians were talking about in these particular texts. As near as historians are able to tell today, the idea seems to go something like this. Quote, The mind becomes one with an object, by concentrating upon it, and by repeating it continuously, to the exclusion of all other thoughts. End quote. What I've just described is quite similar to meditative rituals in Tibetan Buddhism and ancient Hindu teachings. The idea is that as one concentrates on such ideas as impermanence, the scope of the natural universe, the depths of a person's inner universe, and the power of one's mind, you should exclude all other thoughts in meditative ritual. Over time, this immersion and focus allows the mind to attain new thought patterns, new perspectives, and, ultimately, freedom from enslavement by petty earthly desires. For the Egyptians, the concept had similar methods, and even a similar goal. Let's take the story of Isis, Horus, and Osiris, for instance. There is a spell among the coffin texts number 148, that enables a learned and noble soul to take on the form of Horus 
and attain his mastery over the heavens. Quote, the spell for taking shape as a falcon. The lightning flash strikes, and the gods are afraid. Isis awakes, pregnant with the seed of Osiris. She raises herself in a hurry, her heart rejoicing with the child inside, and she says, O gods, I am Isis, the sister of Osiris, who wept for him. His seed is within my body, and it is the sun who will rule this land and become heir to Geb, the earth god, and who will speak on behalf of his father Osiris and slay the evildoer Seth. Come, O gods, and protect him as he is in my womb. Then Atumre said, Take care, woman. How do you know that this child is a god, and lord and heir to the divine council? Isis replied, I am Isis. I am more august and fantastical than the other gods. There is a god within this body, and he is the seed of Osiris. Atum Re replied, Take care, young one. If you are indeed pregnant, then conceal this from the gods lest Seth, who slew your child's father, should come and break the child in the womb. He is so strong that even the Creator is afraid of him. Isis spoke to the child within her body. Come, child, go forth on the earth, and I shall give you glory. The entourage of your father Osiris will serve you, and I will make your name when you have passed over the horizon. You shall be in the palace and the ship of Atum Re forever. Horus is born and speaks. Behold, you gods, I am Horus, the falcon. My flight has passed over the horizon, above even that of the ancient primeval ones. There is no god who has done what I have done. I am Horus, more wide-ranging than people and gods. I am Horus son of Isis. End quote. You might be asking yourself, how is that a spell? It just sounds like a story. That's true enough, but it's a story with a very specific function and a very specific context. Firstly, like all coffin texts, the spell was painted on the interior of a nobleman's coffin, where the bar could read it when they awoke in the next life. So the text is not so much a story to be read, as it is a speech to be recited at need. And the most important part of this speech is not the words of Atum Re or Isis, it is the speech of Horus that is the most important, because this speech is most explicitly linked to the concepts of death and achievement in life. Horus says, My flight has passed over the horizon, referencing the Egyptian notion that the deceased travel westward into the horizon of the setting sun. He also says, There is no god who has done what I have done, which sounds an awful lot like Old Kingdom biographies, that describe their owners as doing things never done before, or never the like achieved. Essentially, this little speech is actually by the deceased, speaking as an incarnation of Horus in the next life. But that's pretty radical by Egyptian standards. I mean, Horus is a royal god. Can we really be sure that this is the meaning? Well, the physical context also gives us a clue. Remember that this was painted on the interior of a coffin. Then consider the fact that Isis talks about how the child is within her body. 
Egyptians viewed the body as much more than a system of muscles, nerves, and organs. It was seen, most importantly, as a spiritual vessel, a container which held the divine spirits of the Ba and the Ka. So when Isis refers to her body, she is referring to a container. And what better container to hold a god than the very coffin on which a spell like this was painted? Speaking metaphorically, one might consider the coffin as a stand-in for the goddess, which protected the body of the deceased until such time as the Ba could come forth, or, quote-unquote, be born. Now, this is a rather loose metaphor, but it's the only way to make this spell work in a social sense. After all, the nobility who made these coffins were not royal. To identify themselves with Horus could only work on a metaphorical level after they were dead. Anything else amounted to a challenge to the king's authority in life. The king is Horus on earth. And if there's one thing we've learned about 12th dynasty kings so far, it is that they were very concerned with maintaining their supremacy and allowing no challenge to their power. Many Egyptologists have wondered why the dead were interested in transforming from their existing selves into something new. Wouldn't the possibility of living eternally as yourself be much more appealing? Well, these people, as they neared their death, were obsessed with the idea of passing on to other realms. And part of that involved taking on other forms. This would explain the individual's self-identification as Horus. In his ideal afterlife, he becomes the royal falcon who transcends the horizon and journeys into infinite realms effortlessly. Essentially, Horus is a metaphor for taking off the shackles of life, making it into the infinite realm. But what was the psychological foundation for this obsession? Was it a necessity? Something that had to be done to make it successfully into the next life? After all, the pyramid texts from which many of these spells were derived were obsessed with the idea of the king transforming from his earthly incarnation of Horus to the eternal incarnation of Atum Re, the sun god and creator of all. 12th dynasty Egyptians were building on these ideas in their own particular way. Now, the nobles couldn't become Re, that would have been a step too far. But did they need to become anything? Couldn't they just go into the afterlife as themselves? It seems not. In later eras, like the New Kingdom and Late Period, this did become the ideal, when people took with them long texts and images showing their journey into the afterlife as themselves. But that is contained in things like the Book of the Dead. And at this earlier stage, Egyptians were thinking of the afterlife in different terms. And one of the things they prepared for most strongly was this idea of transformation. A historian from the University of Austria, Gertrude Thalsing, described this in 1943 as follows. Quote, Transformation achieved the identification with the vital forces, or rather, the various manifestations of the one vital force. This identification takes place through an inner experience and the magically spoken word. End quote. What does that mean? It essentially means that as an Egyptian transformed 
they took on all the elements, all the powers, and all the identities of the natural cosmos around them. Horus embodied infinity in many respects, and to become infinite, that's much more appealing than being bound within your single little form, isn't it? I guess what I'm trying to say here is that the coffin texts represent our first really complex insight into the fears, dreams, and hopes of the Egyptian aristocracy. In time, as our story progresses, we will meet the common men and women in far greater detail in the afterlife, but that can only happen when the evidence becomes available. For now, in the midst of Dynasty 12, let us simply say that what was once a locked box of secrets has now become a more accessible, open space. Egyptian nobles are making the journey into the realm of Osiris, and uniting with Osiris and Re in eternal glory and splendor. Once in the afterlife, and happily engaged in the business of whatever it is that immortals do, the Egyptian noble could turn his attention to the world he had left behind, and enjoy a certain degree of cosmic power over some elements in our own world. I leave you this episode with a reading of Spell 162, which explores some of the powers of an immortal being, living in the realm of Osiris. Quote, To gain control over the four winds of the sky, by these ladies I have been given these winds. The north wind is she who circulates about the house of gold, who stretches out her arms to the limits of the two lands, and who subsides after she has brought her beloved's needs every day. The north wind is the breath of life. It is in order that I may live through her that she has been given to me. The east wind is she who opens the celestial window, the horizon, and releases the eastern breezes, and prepares a good path for Ray, that he might ascend upon it. May Ray grasp my hand, and set me in this field of reeds, that I may graze in it like the Apis bull, and gorge in it like Seth. The east wind is the breath of life, and it is in order that I may live through her, that she has been given to me. The west wind is he who lived as a single entity before duality existed in this world. The west wind is the breath of life. It is in order that I may live through him, that he has been given to me. The south wind is a Nubian of the south, who brings water and encourages life to grow. The south wind is a breath of life. It is in order that I may live through him, that he has been given to me. Hail to you, four winds of the sky, the four bulls of the sky. I tell each of you your name, and the name of the one who gave them to you. I know your creation. You came into being, even before people were born, and gods existed, before birds were snared, and bulls lassoed before the jaws of the great god's daughter were bound up, and the wish of the Ancient One, Lord of Heaven and Earth, was fulfilled. It was from the Lord of Power that I requested them, and it is he who has given the winds to me. Come now, and journey with me, 
that I might let you see the boat which you shall board, and in which we shall sail. If you do not, then I will journey alone to the horizon, and I will take possession of a boat one thousand cubits long, and I will sail in it to the stairway of fire at the same time as Ray when he sails. <laughs>